0: Even if it's electronic, it's okay. Everybody got them up? There we go. Build them muscles up, right? All right. Say this out loud with me. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do everything that my Bible says I can do. By His Spirit, this is God speaking to me. Amen. Now look at your neighbor. And say, "Don't bug me." <laughs> Amen. Don't bug me. I'm trying to learn something. Praise the Lord. So we're in Matthew chapter five. Have you enjoyed this series on the Beatitudes? I definitely have, um, and uh, just thoroughly have enjoyed it. Want to encourage you as well that tonight uh, at seven o'clock we'll be online doing our um, our daily uh, time of. Uh, Kind of our prayer thought that we do every, um, every evening. I think I missed one evening because we had to be at something, but um, we'll be doing that tonight. Um, we're at day 17 in our fast, so moving right along. Amen? Amen. And uh, so I hope you'll join me tonight on Facebook, if you have Facebook, and uh, we'll be doing that tonight. So as we've worked through these Beatitudes, um, we talk about... You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit, they will inherit the kingdom, uh, excuse me, but theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, we talked about meekness last week. This week, we're going to deal with one that says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. This is verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. They, they shall be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And as we've talked about over the last several weeks, we have to remember here that, you know, we, we tend to like, when we think about this Sermon on the Mount, we kind of see a Jesus that he kind of looks like Chuck Norris. You know, he's, he's, he's got his beard, his mustache. He's usually in the movies, he's white, um, Caucasian, and he's up there making these real kind of peaceful statements. Okay, so stop there. One, Jesus was not white. He was not, and uh, he was a radical. I mean, him and John got along really well. John the Baptist, John was a radical. People did not, there were people, you, you know, how do you know someone is a radical? You either love them or hate them. There is no in-between, right? There is no in-between with a radical. I mean, if somebody is like really radical, you, you, you have to make a decision whether you want to be involved with that person, Right? So, whatever that is, you know, I'm a radic- I, I want to be a radical in life about my Christian faith. No matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing something in the church or I'm doing, you know, I was a Chamber of Commerce president for years uh, here in, uh, in the Breckinridge area. Um, you know, it, when I was there, I was a radical Christian. When things came up that didn't align with my Christian faith, I didn't stay silent. Amen. I didn't just sit there and go, well, you know, let's just not make any waves. Radicals make waves. Amen. Amen. When I was in college, I was a radical. One, When I lived for the devil, I was radical for the devil. I didn't care what you thought or anybody else thought. I was doing as much drugs, as much drinking, as much fooling around as I could. I did not care whether you liked it. If you didn't like it too bad, I don't need you. I was radical. When I became a Christian, and I mean really got serious about it, I became a radical Christian. I'd sit in my religion classes in college. Now, you know, uh, in my college that I attended uh, was a um, uh, it was an Ivy League school, and uh, my professors that were there um, there were two religion professors. Mike, one was a one was a um, backslidden Presbyterian, if there is such a thing, and. Uh, I think he he his major thing he taught was world religions and I think he just got confused about what he believed. And the other one that I had was a heart my and he was my um uh he was my I don't want to say he was my mentor, he was my advisor. There you go. He was my advisor and he was a Harvard graduate in religion, a Harvard graduate in religion. So I mean, you know, he had the degrees all up on his wall. Well, About my freshman year, I got, I believed in God, but I got real serious. I became like this really on fire for God believer. And when I, when I, when I really, when I got into that, I mean, I really, when I made that decision in my life, and it primarily happened because I started reading my Bible. See, the Bible will mess you up. It will, it'll mess you up, man. It'll make you, it'll make, look, it, It'll it'll definitely define your location in life. All right, and so, man, I'm on college campus. I'm a basketball player. You know, most just about everybody knows me there at school at college, and then Marietta, except for Sharon, and uh, who didn't care. And uh, <laughs> but uh, I'd sit in those classrooms, and this Harvard Meredith, I mean, this guy graduated in the top of his classes. His PhD. His dissertation that he wrote for, for his, PhD, his his doctoral degree was through Harvard. I can't imagine the, the, how hard that was for him to do that and, and uh, the, the challenge of the educational challenge. And yet when we would get in class, he would make statements and you could just tell that he did not know anything about God. It wasn't that he didn't believe in God. he just didn't know what the Bible said. So me being the big mouth person that I am, radically saved, I'm tired of living like a sinner my life, living defeated, living bound up with every addiction you can think of. I'm in the class and I decide to challenge the professor. See, radicals challenge life. Now I wasn't, you know, I was young and dumb so I didn't, you know, I didn't handle myself in a in a good ethical way. I mean, I got like, like, he said something I didn't like, I raised my hand, and then I would challenge him in front of the class, and then everybody in the class would agree with me, and then he'd get mad, and then we'd have a discussion after class. <laughs> and uh, But I will tell you this, the, the backslidden Presbyterian, he actually turned his life around for Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. They used to make fun of it at Marietta College, where I attended this one professor who that uh, it was a big deal that he actually, uh, he had had a conversion experience. He was teaching religion, but he had a conversion experience where God confronted him. And he took all of his religion books and burned them out on the church, out on the uh, on his lawn. And it was a joke on campus about him. But see, radicals do stuff that people that don't understand are going to make fun of. Like coming here this morning, radicals go to church on Sunday morning. Amen. Radical people do. Radical people live for Jesus every day of their lives. They don't just live for Jesus when they come to church. Radical people pray every day. Radical people read their Bibles. Radical people believe that we can affect community by being involved in community. Amen. Radical people give their time, energy, and resources for the kingdom of God. People that don't understand that, don't get that, think it's stupid that you give money to the, you know, for the work of the kingdom. They think it's stupid that you would put time in to do stuff, you know, puts time in serving in the church. But when you're radical, you know that there's a higher plan than the plan of the earth for your life, all right? Jesus was a radical. He didn't have 12 nice guys. He had 12 radical followers. Are you with me right now? He was so radical that he would make statements that would tick everybody off and most of them would leave him. because of things he said. He made a statement one day, he said, if you don't eat of my body and drink of my blood, you have no part in me. Everybody left except 12 people. And he looked at them and said, do you guys want to leave too? That's what radicals, radicals are like that because they live on a higher plane. They live in a different atmosphere. They walk according to a different pattern. They're not, uh, they're in the world, but they're not of the world, amen. So Jesus was a radical. He was a radical. And uh, I think if we were to meet him today, there would be a lot of Christians wouldn't recognize him. One, he wouldn't be most of our skin color. He would be different. And his sayings would be confrontive. But yet he was love. He was all those things. But he was very, very radical. These Beatitudes are radical statements, friend. They're not, they're not just nice, peaceful, easy-flowing statements. They are statements that literally, if you think of the crowd that he had, there were Pharisees and scribes and religious leaders, and he's up there saying, blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That right away got him in trouble with all the Pharisees in the crowd. He, they, they did not like that. They did not like that. Blessed are the meek, not those who stand out on the corner and ring their religious bell, letting everybody know how spiritual they are. Blessed are the meek, because theirs. Look, they're the ones that are going to be blessed because of their meekness, because their surrender to the Lord. Well, this next statement that he makes in this, in the, in the, in the in, as we go through this, is where he comes out and says in verse six, "Blessed are those who hunger." And thirst for righteousness, where they shall be filled. He uses this word righteousness five times in this in this sermon that he's preaching, and uh, he's making a really a, a really powerful statement here. One thing I want you to notice here, and 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 right away, this will this might be uh, be challenging for us in our thinking. But I want you to to notice that he said he did not say, "Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God." Because sometimes we'll hear people say that, Well, I just, we just need to hunger and thirst for God. Jesus taught that we hunger and thirst for righteousness, and that's when we're going to get filled. You say, well, if you're hungering for God, wouldn't you be hungering for righteousness as well? Not necessarily. Because, see, righteousness is an interesting word. Because righteousness that's used in this context and is used many times throughout the Scriptures it deals with two things, it deals with two aspects of righteousness. The two aspects of righteousness are your your position and your practice, if you wanna write that down. Righteousness has to do with your position and your practice, okay? So when we talk about righteousness, it's not just that I'm in the right position with God, it's also that I'm practicing the right things in this life, okay? So, you know, I grew up, there there are three aspects of righteousness that that we're all familiar with. One is the traditional one, which says there's none righteous, no, not one. Nobody can be good enough. Nobody's good enough. You just can't be. We're all worms. We're all useless. We've all, most of us have lived under all of that. That's the traditional idea. The next one that came along is called the positional, Righteousness, which came through our Wesleyan tradition, which said that if you do all these things, then you're made righteous. Okay, then you're made righteous. So that became more works generated. And Wesley was right in the things he was talking about with the sanctified life. The, the, The thing that God gave him that showed him that we need to live a righteous, holy, sanctified life because God is holy, it was absolutely true. And it still is true to this day. But you always have mankind taking and putting their own thinking on that, which creates bondage. Because what ended up happening was is that that conditional righteousness kept people in limbo. Am I going to heaven? Am I really saved? So am I really in the right place? Do you, any of you remember that? I mean, you just didn't know. If you didn't jump through all the right hoops, you might not get into heaven. And I've been to some funerals in, in that kind of environment where they still say things like, at the funeral, Lord, let, your, let them into heaven. Okay, here's the thing. They're in a thing that you say on earth that's going to get anyone into heaven. Only what the person did in receiving Christ is going to get them into heaven. So when they're dead, it's done. It's over with, okay? I mean, I was at a funeral service and they said, Lord, receive these gifts that we bring today and let, your, let this follower, this believer, this person who believed in you, let them into heaven. And I sat there and I think, that's, I almost wanted to stand up and go, that's a lie. That is a lie right there. That's a lie. But see, that's what happens in, our, in, our, in that conditional idea. So, you know, then you had people that would go like, well, don't ever tell a lie, because if you're a Christian and you tell a lie, you're still going to hell. Unless you've repented of every single sin. And good luck with that. I like what the Bible says. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now watch this. And this is in 1 John 1, 9. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So whatever I forgot to mention God now because of the attitude of my heart is letting that go. He's removing the unrighteousness from my life and aren't you glad for it? Because man look I got too much stuff in my history and my past that I I would be spending the rest of my life confessing everything I did wrong and then I'm still going to forget some things. Amen. So here we have this, this Traditional idea, nobody can be righteous. God's deciding who's righteous. God's deciding who he's letting in. You have a lot of the uh, Calvinistic type teaching that does that, that. God's picking and choosing who he's letting in. doesn't really matter what we do. Then you have this whole, the Wesleyan idea that exists, which actually goes back even further to Augustine and some of the others. That's not what they meant, but that's what man turned it into. Okay, And uh, you end up with this you end up with these two ideas being the predominant Christian idea that people have, the traditional and the conditional. But the the valid one, to me, which has such great power, is not the traditional or the conditional, but the positional righteousness, which says this, that you are righteous because of what Jesus did for you. So when you're in Christ, you're made righteous. When you're in Christ, you're made righteous. Is everybody with me right now? When you're in Christ, you're made righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now, you are today the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus as you have received Christ. But, let me add this as much as you allow Jesus to have control of your life will determine how much that righteousness will affect your life. Here's what that means. That you can have received Christ and his righteousness and live defeated the rest of your life. Or you can let what's in you Get on you. You let what's in you get on you and change your world. See, that's the difference in that positional. You know, I grew up under that traditional and condition. That's what I learned. I didn't want. I could never feel like I ever. I never really felt clean. I never felt like I was past my past. I still felt bound up by my failures and disappointments and all the hidden stuff that was going on in my life. I never felt free from it. Jesus makes this statement in saying that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. What he's saying to you and I is is that, look, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for a righteousness that's exemplified in their lives a righteousness that goes just beyond belief but in action beyond belief into action how has righteousness affected your life how has righteousness affected your everything that you have that your hands are on that you have to do with I love the quote that, um, this is one that Augustine made, and I think this is, uh, this is so powerful. He said, Thou madest us for thyself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you, Lord God. Until it rests in you. C.S. Lewis made this statement. If I find myself in a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I was made for another world. You know that? Yeah, I'll read it again. Thanks, Brad. If I find myself if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. See the drive and I think this is what happens in our you know, in our lives is that as Christians we, we we come to the realization that we need Christ in our lives because, you know, at some point the Holy Spirit reveals to us just how screwed up we really are. And that's good. Amen. That's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. We just realize that like, you know what, I've had all of what, I've had all the religion stuff and I'm... Still not clean, I'm still not free, I'm still bad. Lord, I need you. I, if I ever needed you, I need you right this very, I need you right now. And that's a great place, that's a good place to be in because I know it, it, it's a hurtful place for us because we're like, we're broken. But it's in that brokenness, that meekness, that humility, that, that that's where we really begin to receive what Christ has for us. You know, when we're not teachable, we're not teachable. And if we're not teachable, our lives will not change. I love the quote. I was talking with somebody about it the other day. Uh, There's a a great, um, I think it was Aristotle that said it, but he said that when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. When the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And see, you know, we want... If we just want God to teach us from what we already want to do, that isn't going to work. What God wants to do is come in and, and basically take what we already think is right, get us to a place where we go, okay, I'm wrong, you're right, and then take us to a place where we're walking in his rightness. Where we're walking in it. And that's what we're to hunger and thirst after. See, you know, if I had to come in here this morning and said, oh, man, let's just hunger and thirst after God. Oh, let's just hunger. Oh, God, we're just so hungry and we're thirsty for you. Well, that's great in that moment. But does that transform our lives? Does that change what we do? You know, uh, I, I'll tell you, you know, and for many people, it's just like in the Old Testament. You know, they, they, they the, the Old Testament here, they get all excited, they bring the Ark of the Covenant back, you know, it's back where it belongs, and there's a great ruckus that takes place in the camp. I mean, people are fired up, God is with us, God's presence, His His, his tabernacle is back in place, and oh, look at all this, and in fact, it says, the, the, the enemies hear the ruckus going on with all the Israelites, and they say, God is in their camp. Next day, they get whooped. Not the enemy, the enemy whoops God's people terribly because though the righteous one may have been in the camp, his righteousness was not affecting those that were there. Just because God is somewhere doesn't mean you live in victory. What you and I have to do is we have to take that righteousness that is in us and we have to apply it to our lives. And that's a radical lifestyle. And we have to hunger and we have to thirst for it, to be, to be more than what we are, to be more of a person, to be more. You know, if you take, a, like a, if you take this word that's used for righteousness here, and, and, and uh, I think even in the Passion Translation, it's in your notes in there, uh, that it uses the word justice. Blessed are those, I want you to think how that changes things, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, because that's who's going to get, that's who will get filled. Justice. Justice means that what's in here is affecting what's out here, what's out here. Justice is that we hunger and thirst that abortion's taken out of our country. Completely. Let me just say I'm not going to get on a because I, I don't do political stuff. I don't get all bound up on the political stuff, but here's, but, I, but to me this is a major issue. This is a life issue. This isn't a political issue. The devil hates innocence. There's nothing more innocent than a baby in a womb. There is nothing more innocent and pure than a baby, that potential, that life that is there in that womb, protected within its mother. There's nothing. Now, justice says that I will stand up for the unborn. I'm not telling you go get in political lines and do all of the parade. I'm just saying that when that conversation comes up, does the righteous do you hunger and thirst to live that justice in your life? That justice in your life. You know, when we read the scriptures, God cares about widows. He said real religion is to take care of the orphan and the widow. You want to talk about real justice, help the orphan. (laughs) Maybe I better get my other sermon out. You don't look like you're liking this one very much. But look, my point is this, is what's in us has to become more than something that's in us. You know, we're not like, we're, we're not little Jack Horner sitting in a corner and we pull, you know, stick our thumb in the pie and pull it out with a plum on it and go, what a good boy am I. That's not what righteousness is about, that we can all go around, well, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And how is that? So our response is, well, and how is that affecting your world? How is that changing the world that you live in? How's that changed your family dynamic? How has that changed what? You know what you're doing. Yesterday we were at Kathy Thigpen's mom's funeral and her stepmom's funeral. This was a woman who lived her righteousness. She lived it in her life. I mean, what a great, what a great story of the family talking about this woman, what she did, how she impacted their life, that she was, you know, that she was the real deal. Let me tell you something, folks, the world is looking for the still looking for the real deal. They haven't found it in the church yet. You know why they haven't found it in the church? Because we're just playing. Wow. But see, when we start being the real deal, not the judgmental deal, that's not what I'm talking about. When we start being the real deal, we start showing real love. We We start... being generous instead of thinking about us for or no more when we start living our lives that way in servitude and humility before the Lord what a difference that will make in the world this woman that uh, that we were at her funeral what an incredible I mean just the lives that she impacted she was in she was Sunday school teacher she was involved in every aspect of the church she Was she 97 when she died? 97 years old when she died. Only the last six years could she not get back to church because she was in a nursing home. But she lived her life to glorify the Lord. She impacted her children, her grandchildren, and her great-grandchildren. And her great-grandchildren. I think about some of the people that have gone on from here how they impacted their families from generation to generation. We could tell story after story because righteousness was more than just that they, praise God, my name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life of going to heaven. But it was, look, I'm going to do everything I can on this earth to live the righteous life. My righteousness in me is going to affect how I live righteously outside. I mean, you know, uh, I'll, I'll just use a couple of, of examples here. All right. So, everybody that knew Chuck Clark knew Chuck was a Christian. That's how he lived. All right. Not perfect, but he was. A, everybody knew Mark knew Mark was a Christian. I mean, we were just at uh, we were at a meeting the other night, and somebody that works in the uh, USDA. They, taught, they were talking to us about Mark. They knew Mark was a Christian. Why? Not because he went around going, you're a sinner and you're going to hell if you don't take Jesus into your life. Because when you are a believer and your righteousness in you begins to affect your righteousness outside you, it changes the way you talk. It changes how you look at life. It changes how you deal with turmoil. It changes how you deal with tragedy. It changes everything, and it changes how you look at death. But here's the question: Does everybody know you're a Christian? Do they know? Does your family know? Does your not because you're going to come to church? Look, that's that's that doesn't that's fine, but that's not it. Do they see that you live the believer's life? Do you live the believer's life? We had someone one time that they were telling about how that uh, that uh, they were trying to tell. <laughs> you're, okay, I made people mad in Marietta when I told this, so they'll probably tick some of you off here too. It's okay though. It's I love you. Look, if you haven't figured out I love you, if you're a guest here today, I love you, okay? So it's I'm not trying to start a pick a fight. Unless you want to fight. (laughs) But they were telling their neighbor, they were telling their neighbor about Jesus. And their neighbor, who was not a Christian, was not, was a sinner, looked at them and said, oh, I didn't even know you were a Christian. I see your car at home every Sunday. I'll just kind of let that kind of wave through here. Now look, now now listen to me. Does going to church make it that you're a Christian? No. But what do sinners figure Christians do? What do they think you do? They think you go to church. They think you pray. They think you read your Bible. They think you say grace over your meals. You'd be amazed at the people that have watched whenever we've been out to dinner that will come up and say well we we were watching to see if you were going to pray over your food. No, that's true. That that's happened more than once. More than once. And look, I'm not I'm not ta- I'm not trying to put us under the law. I'm trying to say look, if you are a believer, then what is in you you need to hunger and thirst for this. God that I I don't want to just have a belief, I want to have a belief that transforms. I want a hunger and thirst. That's only, I want to be filled, God. I want my life. I want everything that I have to do, my business, everything. I want my, my job. I want everything that I do. I want my Christian life that's affecting me inside to affect everything that's around me on the outside. Because, see, there's a hunger and a thirst that's in all of us that's inside of all of us that the world can never fill. It can't. It can't fill it. And you can't just get it filled by believing in God. Because God didn't just come to this earth so that we could just believe in him. He came to this earth so that we, he could be Lord of our lives. In church, <laughs> oh man, I don't know if I'm going to get out of this today. <laughs> huh. You know, the Bible talks about in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 2, and we don't have to turn there, but if you look at verses 12 and 13, he says, Look, he says, I wanted to do something for you, but you have put your faith in broken cisterns. They're going to leak, they're just going to keep on leaking. Jesus told us in the New Testament in in Matthew 6, he goes on and he says, look, that you and I, that we need to seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, and then everything else will take care of itself. It'll take care of itself. I don't know, Pastor, that sounds pretty tough. It is tough, but you can do it. You and I can do that. We can do that. It's not just a position, but it's a practice of our lives. I want you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. We're almost done. I know you're going, thank God. 1 John chapter 3. I just want you to see this. First John 3:10 He says in verse 10 in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest whoever does not and he goes on and says practice righteousness practice righteousness is not of God nor is he who does not love his brother for this is the message you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. The, the works that we do, are they righteous or do they look evil? We are called to do righteous works before God. What was it that got these two in trouble? What got, What happened between Cain and Abel? Abel brought a sacrifice. It was just as good as the sacrifice that Cain brought. Don't think because Cain brought vegetables that wasn't good enough. The problem with the sacrifice had nothing to do with the sacrifice. It had everything to do with the sacrificer. The sacrificer had a bad attitude. The sacrificer said, well I don't know why I need to do this but I'll do it just because I have to but I really don't want to do it. And Abel came and did it because he wanted to, right? So when God comes down and it says he didn't take, he didn't receive Cain's sacrifice. Why didn't he take it? Because he wasn't given it the right way. He didn't do it. He didn't, he was just doing it out of obligation. He was just doing it because that's what God expected of him. See how our Christian life can become like that? That we get into a place in our Christian walk where we're just doing stuff because we think that's what God expects from us. And what God really wants to do in our lives is, is that he wants to affect his righteousness so strong in our lives that we want to do the right things. That we want to do the right thing. And people, when we started talking about righteousness, there was always this great fear, especially in the Word of Faith movement. Oh, man, don't say it too strong. Don't talk about grace too strong because then people people will commit sin and think they're okay. Well, one, people are going to sin no matter whether they think they're okay or not. Two, you cannot just get people to do the right things when their heart is still wrong. We're spending a lot of time in our world right now trying to affect what people do. What needs to change is the hearts of people. Can you say amen? It's the heart issue. That's where it really is at. That's how we need to pray, is for heart change. Heart change in our politicians. Heart change in our nation. Heart change in our world. Or we're just going to end up with we'll do good for a while. Everybody here can do good for a while. Look at your neighbor and say, I know you can do good for a while. We all can. I lived a lot of my Christian life trying to do good for a while. Does anybody understand what I I mean? I'd come to the altar. Oh, God, I'm sorry. I'm no good. I'm worthless. I, I need your forgiveness, Lord. I'm sorry I was so bad. And then I'd get up and I'd do good for a while. But one day, there, something happened. That good for a while went away and went good to stay. Good to stay. Because that's where righteousness now became more than just something internal, but it became the externality of my life that I began to do things that were righteous in life. I began to, look, I wasn't like just thinking about, you know, um, I'd sit in church and I'd think about, oh my gosh, all the stuff I got to give up. This preacher, he's, t- you know, he's talking about, I want to, I, I mean, you got to give up the, the drinking, you got to give up the doping, you got to give up the immorality, and I'm listening to all that, I'm going, man, I don't know, and he's saying, well, you're going to hell if you don't. And I don't want to go to hell. So where am I going? Down to the altar. Oh God, I'm sorry. I don't want to do those things anymore. And then I'd get up and go right back doing them again. But today, I don't even think about doing those things. He said, "Well, you just don't do them because you're a preacher." Oh, well, let me tell you, there's a whole lot of preachers doing a lot of stuff. They haven't, they haven't changed either. I'm not going to get into that, but I'm just telling you. There was a lot of alcoholism among preachers. I had a great, it was a great, had the biggest church in our area, in Marietta, the biggest Privately, was telling people that if he could go out on his boat and smoke weed, he knows that he would hear from God. You know, I just I can't find that in the Bible anywhere. I mean, I see where Sarah lit off a camel, but I don't see any place where it, or Rachel or whoever it was. <laughs> But I don't see any place where it says, and they shall be filled as they smoke weed. I got a revelation. Yeah. Oh, man, transformation. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We'll stop. We'll go to Romans 4, and I'll stop this morning. Last verse, I promise. Though I have more, I will stop. Romans 4. Because I love this, this is about Abraham, and, and this talks about our faith at work. And, you know, when you read about Abraham, you see here in verse, you, you read in verse um, 17, how that when God was dealing with Abraham and he was, he was speaking to Abraham, he said in verse 17, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope and hope believed so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He Uh, the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. And then look at verse 22, this is where I want to finish. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Because it was more than just a belief. You want to know when faith really starts affecting our lives? When it becomes more than just something we internally believe in, it begins to affect our action. You know what the first thing Abraham had to do? Was change his name to Abraham. That was the first thing. You talk about a step of faith. That's This guy has to go around because God says, I no longer call you Abram. I call you Abraham, which means you're the father of many nations. And here he goes. He's got to go out. And when he introduces himself to people, he has to say to them, my name is Abraham, not Abram anymore. And they look at him and go, dude, you're 100 years old. Your wife's womb is dead. There's no way that could happen. Come on. You've been talking about God doing something in your life all these years, almost 25 years and nothing's happened. You started at 75, you're 100 years old. Nothing has changed. Nothing's any different. He said, "Well, I'm just telling you God has said in his word said to me that my name is Abraham, I'm the father of many nations." You don't think people had a good joke about this radical righteousness that he was living? That would be like you and I that we that we're we're, we're broke, man. We're homeless. We're living on the street. We have no money, no resources, no family to draw from. And when we go up and introduce ourselves to people, we say, I'm blessed and prosperous. Excuse me, you're broke and poor. Well, that may be what you say about me, and that may be what my life looks like right now. But this is what God says in his word. Now we're talking about real righteousness. We're talking about a righteousness that in our lives that we're not just going and accepting what's happened in our lives or where we've been, but we're talking about a righteousness now that is affecting everything that we do. Doctor, you may say I'm going to die, but I am saying that I'm going to live and I'm not going to die and I'm going to declare to the works of my God. You may say I'm broke and I'm poor. You may say I live in lack. You may say I'm in a time of famine, but I'm saying supernatural increase. Now you don't think people think that's nuts righteousness looks nuts to the unrighteous because they don't have what's in you but when they get what's in you when they see it come to pass when they see that you are prospering when it sees that they see that you are healthy when they see that you didn't die and you're still alive. The other people thought you were dead. You're going to be gone, man. This Two years ago, he's done. Look at him. He looks terrible. He's, going to, he's not going to make it. Huh? Look, here's Joan sitting here. You think uh, there weren't people that were saying, Joan's never going to come back. She's gone. Her kidneys have failed. Everything's breaking down. She's a funny color. She's dying. We just better start getting ready for the next funeral. But Joan... And thank God her daughters would not let people come into the room and say crazy stuff over her. We went in. We said, you're going to live. You're not going to die. And she'd blink her eyes or shake, squeeze our hand if she had tubes down her throat. And you know what? Everything that the devil meant for harm is turning for good. Because that's righteousness in you that's beginning to manifest on a righteousness that is outside of you. And that is what we have to hunger. Do you see how when Jesus said this, this was so, oh my goodness, this was was so radical to the people there. Because he's telling them, look, it's not good enough you got it in you. You got to have it in you, on you too. And it's not good enough that you got it on you, Pharisee. You got to have it in you too. So you got to have them both. You can't have one without the other. You got to have both sides of it. You got to have the position. And you've got to have the lifestyle that matches the position that you're in. Listen, you're a child of God. You're an almighty child of God in this earth because you've got a great God in your life. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Can you say amen? Amen. Stand up with me if you would. Amen. Well, I preach myself happy. (laughs) It's always good when the sermon's over if the pastor's happy. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Every you come up for prayer, you're making a declaration of righteousness in your life. I want you to think about that. You're not just coming up here to see what's going to happen. You're coming up here to say, this is what I want to have happen. God, How powerful is that? Because, see, that's the righteousness in you manifesting on it. Now, whether you're getting someone to pray with you, hey, there's power in agreement, man. Get people that can get in agreement with you. But what happens is, is that you and I, every time we come to this altar for prayer, every time we utter a prayer of confession, every time we, we, we do something for the kingdom, here's what we're doing. We're making a declaration of righteousness I didn't have time to turn to it, but in Titus, he talks about doing works of righteousness. That when you and I, whatever we do, coming to the altar, a work of raising our hands to God and worshiping, showing up in church, reading our Bibles, praying, all those things, what are they doing? They're works of righteousness. They're not just internal, I believe, something. They are manifesting in our lives that Jesus is Lord. I want you to think about this this morning as well. If you're battling sickness in your body, when you take a step out and you say, I'm going to the altar to get healed, here's what you're doing. You're putting the devil's neck under your feet. That's righteousness. When you come and you get people to pray with you for financial things going on in your life, when you give in your offering, that's a righteous work right there. Because what you're saying is, Lord, I completely trust you. And here's what I just did. I just put that enemy... Under my feet. Because he said he'd rebuke the devourer for our sake. He's under. That's all under my feet. Lack and poverty are under my feet, in Jesus' name. Amen. Sickness and disease are under my feet because that's where the devil is. He's under our feet. He's not up here messing with us. Hallelujah. My whole household will be saved. Every time I pray and utter that and say that, God, not only am I, Sharon and I, saved, but, Lord, my whole household is saved. That's everyone, yes, absolutely, is saved, Lord. Everyone, not a future, Ted, I'm saying today. Today. Here's what I want to ask you today. This is really good. Does the devil look at what you say and laugh going, you're nuts? Because if you're declaring righteousness over your life, I can tell you right now the enemy is doing everything he can to try to sway you from that, ridicule will be the beginning of it. What are you doing? Why are you saying that? Who do you think you don't think this is all in the Bible? There are all kinds of people where who do you think you are? Who do you think you what did they do, the seven sons of Sceva. We know those guys. We don't know you. Who do you think you guys are? Bam, they're in trouble. I think we need to start making some declarations that make the devil look at us and go, They're nuts. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I just want to know, are you ready to put the devil under your feet? Whatever that battle that you're in right now. I get battles, man, I understand it. But I also know this, and this is the victory that overcome, according to 1 John 5, 4. This is the victory that overcomes the world even our faith. 1 John 5, 14, 15. This is the confidence we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, which is his word, that he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, then we know we have the petition that we have desired of him. That's why we have altar workers up here because these. if you don't know if it's his will, they know it's his will. And so they'll come in agreement with you in righteousness and miracles will happen. I'm just going to ask our older workers to come right now.